Chapter 24 of Boston Blackie by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Blood Deputy Warden Martin Sherwood, disciplinarian and real head of the prison management, sat in his office gripping an unlighted cigar between his lips. The screaming siren had warned him of trouble in the mill. Wall guards reporting over a dozen phones had told him all they knew, that the men had seized the mill and barred its doors against attack and were ejecting the guards one by one. "'Any of them hurt?' Sherwood inquired. "'Apparently not, sir,' the subordinate answered. "'Their hands are tied, but they don't seem to be harmed. Captain Denison is out and on his way up to you.' "'If Denison is out unharmed, nobody needs a doctor.' Sherwood said with a glint in his eyes that just missed being disappointment. If they had spilled any blood, his would have been first. Strange. Twenty men at the mercy of a thousand uncaged wolves, and nobody dead, eh? I wouldn't have believed it possible, and I thought I knew Kahn's. He turned and saw a nervous assistant buckling on a revolver. Take off that gun and get it outside the gates quick, he commanded. Don't leave even a bean-shooter inside these walls. This is no ordinary riot. There's headwork behind this. It looks as if we might have real trouble. Deputy Sherwood reached into his desk, struck a match, and lighted his cigar. When Martin Sherwood lighted tobacco, he was pleased. The whole prison knew this habit. Among the convicts, the sight of the deputy smoking invariably sent a silently spoken warning from lip to lip. The old man's smoking. Be careful. Someone's going to hang on the sack straight-jacket, tonight, they would say, and the prediction seldom was unfulfilled. It was true that Martin Sherwood took grim, silent delight in inflicting punishment. He hated and despised convicts, and took pleasure in making them cringe and beg under the iron rod of his discipline. Somewhere well back in his ancestry there was a cross of Indian blood, a cross that revealed itself in coarse coal-black hair, in teeth so white and strong and perfect they were all but repulsive, and lastly, in the cruelties of Punishment Hall, cruelties that made San Gregorio known as the toughest stir in the country. There was a reason for this strange twist in the character of a man absolutely fearless and otherwise fair. Years before, he had brought a bride to his home just outside the prison walls. She was pretty and young and weak just the sort of girl the attraction of opposites would send to a man like Martin Sherwood. There were a few months of happiness, during which Sherwood sometimes was seen to smile even among the convicts. Then came the crash. A convict employed as a servant in the deputy's home completed his sentence and was released. With him went the deputy's wife, leaving behind a note that none but the deserted husband ever saw. He never revealed by word or look the wound that festered in his heart, but from that day he was a man unfeeling as iron, a man who hated convicts and rejoiced in their hatred of him. Punishment Hall, when he could use its tortures with justice, became his instrument of revenge. This perhaps explains why Martin Sherwood sat in his office calmly smoking a cigar when Captain Denison, white and shaken, rushed in and tumbled into a chair, his superior read in a glance the story of the scene in the mill. "'They might as well have killed you in the mill as to send you up here to die of fright in my office,' 
the deputy said with such biting sarcasm that Denison, terror-stricken as he was, flushed. A few quick, incisive questions brought out the facts about the revolt. Deputy, there is serious trouble ahead, Denison warned in conclusion. Those cons have a leader. They obey like a regiment of soldiers. He is— Boston Blackie, of course, interrupted Sherwood. There isn't a man down there who would have planned and executed a plot like this but Blackie. I should have known better than to put him where he could come in contact with a man. The guard who had been given the convict leader's ultimatum to the deputy warden rushed in. He says he wants the men out of Punishment Hall and your promise of better food from now on, or he'll tear the mill down in an hour, the man reported. The deputy warden tossed away his cigar and stepped out into the courtyard, bright with a thousand blossoms of the California spring. Sends an ultimatum to me, does he? he repeated softly to himself. He's a man with real nerve and real brains. There is no way for me to reach the men while they're inside the mill. I must get them out and up here in this yard where the Gatlings and rifle guards will have a chance, and then I'll break Mr. Boston Blackie and the rest of them in the jacket, one by one. His eyes gleamed at the thought. He turned to the men in the office. I'm going down to the mill, he said. Have a Gatling gun ready in each of the four towers that cover this yard. Ready, but out of sight. Do you understand? Down to the mill? cried Denison in amazement. "'Deputy, you don't realize the spirit of that mob. "'You won't live five minutes. "'They will murder you as surely as you put yourself in their power. "'Don't go.' "'If I am not back in half an hour, "'your prediction will have been fulfilled,' Sherwood said. "'He took his pocket-knife and a roll of bills from his pocket "'and locked them in his desk. "'If I am not back in half an hour, Denison, "'call the warden at his club in San Francisco. "'Tell him what has happened and that they got me.' "'Say my last word was for him to call on the governor for a regiment of militia. "'But for the next half hour, do nothing except get your nerve back, if you can.' Sherwood pulled a straw from a whisk broom on his desk, stuck it between his teeth, from which his lips curled back until the abnormally long incisors were revealed, and started for the mill-yard as calmly as though he were going to luncheon. White-faced guards at the last gate tried to stay him. The uproar from within the mill was deafening. Songs, curses, and cries of frenzied exultation came from behind the steel-barred doors. "'Open the gates,' commanded Sherwood. "'Lock them behind me, and don't reopen them again, even if you think it's to save my life.' Still holding the straw clenched between his teeth, the deputy crossed the yard, neither hurrying nor hesitating. Nothing in his face or demeanor gave the slightest indication that he knew he was delivering himself, unarmed, into the power of a thousand crazed men, every one of whom had reason to hate him with that sort of undying hatred that grows from wrongs unrevenged and long suppressed. Sherwood hammered on the door with his fist. The clamor inside suddenly died. "'Open the door!' he commanded. "'I'm coming in to talk to you. I'm alone and unarmed.' The man on guard at the door raised the iron wicket and looked out. "'It's the deputy,' he whispered. "'He's alone, too. Once we get him inside—' The man sank his teeth into his lip until the blood streamed across his chin. Primeval savagery, hidden only skin deep in any man, reverts to the surface hideously among such men in such an hour. With hands trembling with eagerness, the convict unbarred the door, and Martin Sherwood stepped quickly in and faced the mob. 
For five seconds, that seemed an hour, there was dead silence. It was broken by an inarticulate, unhuman, menacing roar of rage that rose to a scream as the men realized the completeness of their power over the man who to them was the living embodiment of the law which denied them everything that makes life livable. A man in the rear of the mob thrust aside his fellows, rushed at the deputy, and spat in his face. As calmly as though he were in his own office, Sherwood drew out his handkerchief and wiped his cheek, but never for an instant did his eyes waver from the men he faced. His teeth, whiter and more animal-like than ever, it seemed, gleamed like a wolf's fangs as he chewed at the straw between them. "'I'll remember that, Kelly, when I get you in the jacket,' he said slowly to the man who had spat upon him. The convict laughed, but pressed backward, cowed against his will by the fearless assurance of his antagonist. Boston Blackie was in the rear of the mill when the sudden silence warned him of new developments at the front door. Forcing his way through the crowd, he was within ten feet of the deputy warden before he saw him. The striped leader's face paled as he recognized Sherwood, paled with fear not of him but for him. If the official were killed, as there was every probability he would be, he knew it meant the gallows for himself and a score of the men behind him. He had risked everything on his ability to prevent bloodshed. The lives of all of them depended on the safety of the hated autocrat who stood before him calmly chewing a broom straw in the midst of hundreds of men hungering for his life. Blackie caught the deputy warden by the shoulder and turned him toward the door. Go, he said. Get out before they kill you. Sherwood threw off his hand. You may be able to command this convict rabble, Blackie, he said in a voice perfectly audible in the new silence which had fallen on the mob, but you can't command me. I came to talk to these men, and I'm going to do it. From somewhere in the rear came a metal weight which missed Sherwood's head by inches and crashed against the door behind him. The screaming blood cry rose again. One struck at the deputy's head with a shuttle, but Blackie, quicker in eye and hand, hit first and laid the man senseless at his feet. Then he jumped to the top of a loom. Men, if you want to hang, his voice rising even above the bedlam about him, I'll go along with you, if you'll listen to me first. The outcry died for a moment, and Blackie talked to them. He made no pleas, asked no favors. He told them their situation and his plan to attain the ends for which they had revolted, the release of the prisoners in punishment hall, and better food for themselves. He pointed the futility of the hope of escape, ringed about as they were by gatling guns and rifles and a score of watchtowers, even if they could force the walls as one suggested. Gradually, by sheer force of mind, he dominated the crowd, and when at last he called on them to follow him to the end, their cheer was that of soldiers to a recognized leader. All through this harangue, Sherwood stood listening, his face as inexpressive as the walls behind him. "'Deputy,' said Blackie, turning to him, "'we have been told you said you would keep the men in Punishment Hall in the straitjacket until they die, if necessary, to find out who smuggled out the letter complaining about the rotten food.' Is that true? It is, said Sherwood, who never lied. We make three demands, then, said Blackie. First, the release of all the men undergoing punishment. Second, your promise that no man concerned in this revolt shall be punished. Third, your guarantee that henceforth we get the food for which the state pays, but which the commissary captain steals. And if I refuse, what then? asked Sherwood. At noon, we will destroy the mill. Boys, said the deputy, I have listened to your spokesman. 
You know, I can't grant your demands without consulting the warden, who is in San Francisco. I will do this, however. I will declare a half-holiday. It is almost dinner-time. Come over to the upper yard, have your dinner as usual, and we'll watch a ball game in the afternoon. Before night, I will give you your answer. With the thought of the Gatling guns and rifles that covered the upper yard in his mind, Sherwood smiled grimly. The men cheered and made a rush in the direction of the doors, thinking the victory won. "'Wait!' cried Blackie, barring the door with uplifted arms. "'Nobody is going to stir out of this mill until you, Mr. Sherwood, have given us a definite promise all our demands are granted. You would like well enough to get us in the upper yard, away from those protecting walls, and where we couldn't do a dollar's worth of damage. But we're not going.' When the men in Punishment Hall are free, and you, who have never been known to lie, have told us that we'll be fed right, and no one harmed or punished now or in the future for this morning's work, we'll go into the upper yard, not before. Boys, said the deputy, still hoping to urge the men into the trap, do as I suggest. Why should you let this man, contemptuously indicating Blackie, order you around? He's only a con like yourselves. Come on up to the yard, and I'll issue an extra ration of tobacco all around. Are you going to go along with me, or stay here with him? We'll stay, answered Blackie for the men. It's no use, deputy. The game doesn't work this time. A shout from the men proved Sherwood's defeat. He wasn't a man to delay or lament over a beaten hand. You're quite a general, Blackie said the deputy slowly, a flicker of admiration in his eyes. I'll give you an answer in fifteen minutes. But, he looked straight into Boston Blackie's eyes with steely determination, don't think you are always going to have all the cards as you have today. The next time you and I clash, I'm going to break you like this. He jerked the straw from his mouth and twisted it apart. Then he walked out of the mill. A quarter of an hour later, ten pain-racked prisoners from the punishment chambers were welcomed back to the mill with an outburst of exaltation such as San Gregorio Penitentiary had never seen. With them came the deputy warden's acceptance of Boston Blackie's terms. The men rioted joyously in an abandonment of happiness. In the midst of the turbulent jollification, a half-witted, one-armed boy, nicknamed the Squirrel, climbed to the top of a loom drew out his one treasure, a mouth-organ, and tried to express his joy in the one way he knew, and his dismal interpretation of the star-spangled banner floated out over the crowd. "'Cut out the bum music!' cried a burly convict to whom the spirit of the hour had given a wanton impulse to command. "'Where do you figure in this, you nutty squirrel?' The boy's eyes filled with tears, and his notes faltered and died in the middle of a bar. Boston Blackie, always sensitive to the feelings of others, stopped the lad as he slunk from his perch on the loom and lifted him back. "'Go ahead. Play, little squirrel,' he said encouragingly. "'Your music is as good as a band. Go to it. You're one of us, you know, and we're all happy.' Intuitively, Blackie had salved the wound caused by the jibe. Radiant now, the squirrel pressed his mouth-organ to his lips and played on and on with a light in his dull eyes that made Blackie mutter— Poor kid. A pardon wouldn't make him any happier. And the convicts, only one degree less childish than the squirrel, celebrated and sang in their cells that night, until at last they settled into silence and carefree sleep. No thought of a tomorrow disturbed them. 
But Boston Blackie, quiet and wakeful, lay on his cell bunk, anxiously probing the future. In his mind he still saw the broken bits of Martin Sherwood's broomstraw fluttering to the mill floor and heard his threat. The next time you and I clash, I'm going to break you like this. End of chapter 24